Good morning, everyone. Oh, and what a morning it is. <laughs>
right. Uh, good morning. And uh, could you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? I'll be with you momentarily. Let me just hang up my guitar and I'll be right back. Alrighty, I'm back. Oh, let me get to the screen here. A little bit flustered here, just trying to get some things situated, and I get. Uh... <laughs> Anyways, all right. Uh, could you, if you haven't turned already, go to Ephesians chapter two, verse one. Ephesians chapter two, verse one. I'm just looking at my uh, the broadcast stream here. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I have this uh, with my uh, broadcasting for YouTube. It's got some kind of funky thing going on. But anyways, enough of that. And uh, so good to have you with us, those who are with us uh, live and those who might be uh, on the recordings. And uh, you should be at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As you can see, we're going to uh, wrap up our study today of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I do believe this is the last um, class in Ephesians 2, 11. Uh, yep. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, so we'll finish uh, Ephesians 2.11 today by noting uh, Paul's use of the word uncircumcision versus circumcision. We're going to talk about what that's all about 
and uh, and remember we're in the context of uh, the Jews and Gentiles uh, in the Christian community with the, uh, interrelating with each other, and uh, so where they're going to be the new humanity, as we'll see in Ephesians two eleven through twenty two, Jewish and Gentile Christians. So Paul is uh, going to be uh, talking about uh, the Jews who he describes as, who called who are called circumcision by the Gentiles, and the Gentile Jews uh, the Gentiles are called by the Jews the uncircumcision. So. We're going to talk about all that and uh, today, and uh, so without further ado, and uh, let's uh, take a moment of silent prayers as our custom, and I could use a moment of silent prayer right now. <laughs> this is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we know and we commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. And uh, we maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the, the Spirit which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing you, distracting you, do it. First Peter 5.7 says, Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us another day to study your word. We pray, Father, that uh, today you would help me to uh, concentrate and by the power of spirit to communicate your full counsel to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. We also pray I also pray for the audience, to you help your children in the audience to learn, understand what's being taught, make application to concentrate, and please break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening, and any unsaved, uh, help them to understand the gospel so that they can make a decision to accept or reject your son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. We know that you desire all people to be saved and come to an experiential knowledge of the truth. I also pray, Father, for um, today that uh, that there be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. Thank you for them and the people taking advantage of them, and I thank you, Father, and praise you for your faithfulness to this ministry and all the things that you've uh, done for me over the years, all the great deliverances in this ministry, and the people you brought into my life that have uh, been a part of this ministry and in the past or up to this point. I just thank you, Father, for each and every one of them, 
And I thank you, Father, for the, the good times, the bad times, the trials and tribulations, and uh, the successes and failures. And I thank you for all these things and all the things that you uh, are doing uh, to conform myself and all of my brothers and sisters in Christ into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you for this ministry, and I thank you for this study in Ephesians. And I just pray, Father, that it would be a great blessing to your people uh, today and, and people who are listening today live or through a later date through the recordings on the various websites and podcasts and media platforms that you've given to us. And I rejoice in the great victory that you've given to us over your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray the Spirit will continue to open up our eyes of our heart to understand the great power and love that's been directed toward us because of our union in your Son union identification with your son, Jesus Christ. So it is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, should be at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And as you see on the board, we're going to be looking at the, finishing off our study of Ephesians 2.11 by noting Paul's use of the terms uncircumcision and uh, versus circumcision. So you should be at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to read uh, from the Net Bible and then the entire chapter. And then as we've been doing, we'll read the entire chapter in my translation and then go into our lesson wrapping up our study of Ephesians 2.11 by noting Paul's use of the terms circumcision and uncircumcision. So it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, again, I'm reading from the Net Bible. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand, so we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Let's read my translation of that same chapter. Now, correspondingly, even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system 
in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere. Specifically, the spirit is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, among whom each and every one of us also formally for our own selfish benefit conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you is a corporate unit to say because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. He did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which is certain to come, the incomparable wealth which is the product of his grace because of kindness for the benefit of each and every one of us because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit is saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It does not originate from meritorious actions as a source, so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us has been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision by those who receive the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands, each one of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each and every one of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used not to, used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a, a relationship with God and the sphere of the cosmic world system. Verse 13, however, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you is a corporate unit who formerly were far away, had been now brought near by means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace, namely by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused the hostility between the two races and the two with God. In other words, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself at justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus he caused peace to be established between the Jews and Gentiles and the Jews and Gentiles with God. In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross, 
Consequently, he put to death the hostility between the two races and the two races with God by means of faith in himself and justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Correspondingly, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely those who were far off, likewise peace to those who were near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us is a corporate unit, namely both groups are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens. But each, rather, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household, because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel, to each one of you by the apostles as well as prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. On the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union identification with him, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him all of you, without exception, are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. What an amazing passage. And, you know, we, because the church has been primarily Gentile for centuries, really, uh, with the exception of the first century, when early on, where it was mainly Jewish, uh, then the Gentiles came in, and the Gentiles have flocked to the gospel. But we take this for granted, us Gentile believers, that really... This is an amazing passage that teaches us, accentuates like the verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. It accentuates the grace of God and and which flows from his attribute of love and that he treated us. You know, we were not only enemies of God and unregenerate, but we were far away from the uh, the, uh, covenant relationship with God. We, We didn't have one like the nation of Israel did. You know, and we were, we, you know, remember all the great privileges that the Jews had. Uh, they, they were given the scriptures. Uh, There's a Jewish book. Uh, we have uh, also the temple, tabernacle, temple, temple worship. Uh, only Israel was given that. The Mosaic law, the law written, God's law written and, and, and given to the Jews. No other nation had that given to them, God's law in written form like they did. Then you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They descended from him. And Christ it would be a, be a Jew. Salvation is of the Jew. The Jews, as Paul, uh, joy, uh, the, Lord, the Lord said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and John's Gospel, chapter 4. So we're very blessed, you know, and, and, and as Gentiles, and, and, you know, God treated us with incredible, this, you know, they write songs about it, right? Amazing grace. And grace is unmerited blessings that flow from God's attribute of love. And they are bestowed upon a person in the church age who trusts in his son, Jesus Christ, his Savior. And at that moment, the Father credits his righteousness uh, to us as uh, uh, sinners, credits his son's righteousness to us, and then declares us justified, meaning he accepted us into his family permanently. And then he, at simultaneously, through the baptism of the Spirit, he identified us with Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. And this uh, was uh, the uh, second step in, in bringing uh, restoring humanity to its rightful posi- uh, position as the rulers over the works of God's hands. Because Jewish and Gentile believers in the church age are going to be the, are the bride of Christ. They're members of the, of the body of Christ. And Christ at his second advent will come back to earth 
to with the church to establish the, the kingdom of God, the millennial reign on the earth at that time. And at that time, he'll dispossess Satan and the fallen angels who are the temporary rulers of this world. And this is why Paul, and when we get to Ephesians 3, a passage I'm working on already in verses 1 to uh, uh, Three, uh, ch chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, Paul basically uh, and, and, uh, says his Roman imprisonment was because of what he was teaching was the proclamation, really, of, which we're learning here, is the proclamation to Satan and his kingdom that they're defeated and they're going to be dispossessed and they're going to be removed from rulership of the earth, and it's imminent. Okay? So, again, Paul was persecuted. So if you're a teacher of the Word of God, okay, and you're communicating with Paul's teaching here, which is basically the mystery doctrine of the church age. Both Jew and Gentile are believers in the church age, are fellow heirs, fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus. And that is the that is the stewardship of God's grace that God gave Paul, and it's been passed down to us in Scripture, and that we're to communicate what Paul said. And when you do that, you're going to be an object of attack from the kingdom of darkness. Okay? And so, uh, so if you're a pastor, and you're, you're, you're faithful teaching the full counsel of God, and you wonder why you have trials and tribulations, there you go. It's because of that. And you should rejoice over that. That means you're doing good. So you're going to have opposition. If you didn't have opposition, I'd be, I'd be concerned. I mean, I think about it. I don't like it, but when I have opposition and I have trials and tribulations, I, th I need to thank God more, I think, for it. And uh, because it's, it's amazing, you know, it's like, and, but it's because of the message. You know, when you proclaim this message throughout the world like we're doing, and many others are doing it as well, uh, it's it's going to draw our attention from the enemy. So it's, uh, you know, we should rejoice in our sufferings because it's evidence of God's grace on us and that uh, we're uh, we're working toward getting a reward at the Bama seat for faithful service. And we just got to keep persevering. And I've run into too many pastors that have quit the ministry for various reasons. And I tell you right now, it's very easy to want to roll over and say, I quit. And I've, many times I've, I've thought about it too, but never really quite seriously because like I, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. But I've run into guys lately, when I, especially down here in Huntsville, like, who were pastors and, and they stepped aside from it. And they, you know, so-called retired. And uh, I was like, really? You know, I, here you got, these guys are breaking away and doing something else, which is probably because there's more money in it. And, uh, you know, being a pastor is not a money-making business. You know, you're not in it for the money. But some guys, you know, they tr have trials and tribulations with that, and they leave the ministry because of that. Or they go bivocational, which is fine. But um, there's a lot of things that go on, and there's the pressures of being in, 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 in ministry today. And we're le losing pastors left and right. And so, uh, you know, I think Satan's trying to put the church away in America for good. He's trying to bury her. And, uh, but, uh, he can't stand against it. The king, the, the king, you know, the, the gates of hell cannot, uh, you know, get, uh, to destroy it. You know, Satan can't destroy God's church, our Lord's church. And he'll see to that. He'll protect her. And he always sets aside a remnant that, that will be remain faithful. But, you know, this, this is amazing stuff that we're just reading from Paul here in Ephesians chapter two. And as, as, as promised, uh, we're going to be looking at this, this, these two, uh, descriptions, uh, the uncircumcision versus the circumcision. What is he when he uses these terms? What is he trying to say here? What is Paul trying to say? But before we get that, uh, get to that. Uh, remember, this is a command that we have, and uh, we saw this in the previous class. Verses two, chapter two, verses eleven through thirteen, actually uh, is a command to do something, to remember something. He's telling the, the recipients of this letter who were Gentile Christians, according to Ephesians 2.11 they were. And he's telling them to remember something. What is he going to remember? Once he, what does he want them to remember about? 
Well, here it is. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 in the Net Bible again. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands. This is what they to remember, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, the command in verse 11 and verses 12 and 13, we could say as well, but the verb that's in, in an imperative form, maimanusco, uh, uh, is uh, in verse 11. But uh, if this particular command is modified by a hody direct object clause, we call it. And it describes, as we just read, uh, that uh, the recipients of this epistle, it describes the recipients of this epistle as receiving the designation, uncircumcision, with respect to the human body, by those who receive the designation, circumcision, with respect to the human body, which is performed by human beings. It asserts that the recipients of this epistle, who again, Gentile Christians, who were called uncircumcision by those who were called circumcision, the Jews, were brought near to God and his covenant people Israel by the blood of Christ because of their faith in Christ, the justification and their union identification with him. So therefore, this would indicate this action on the part of God of bringing these Gentile Gentile believers near to himself in his covenant people by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, through their faith in his son, was to receive the action of being remembered by these Gentile Christians. So it's a holy direct object clause, which means that this entire clause is receiving the action of the verb uh, that's uh, in the verse, in verse 11, which, so you have this verb here in verse 11, remember, and that's, the word is meimenuo, okay? And this word is in an imperative form, second person plural, and it's a, it's a present active imperative. And so uh, he, this is very important. So he, and if you look at my translation on the board of verse 11, it says each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit. So it's a customary present imperative that they're to remember uh, the fact that they were what? They were alienated that they were at one time without the Messiah, as we see, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What else should they remember? But now Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, as you see in my notes here, we see that in Ephesians 2.12 is also a holy direct object clause, which also describes the unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians. And it describes them as being, again, without the Messiah, i.e. the Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Consequently, he describes them as possessing absolutely no confident expectation of blessing from God because they don't possess a covenant relationship with him like the Jews possessed with him. So therefore, this would indicate that, that it would indicate this action on the part of God of bringing these Gentiles near to himself and his covenant people by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, because of their faith in him, it's justification. Despite the fact that they possessed absolutely no relationship whatsoever with God or his covenant people, was to receive the action of being remembered by these Gentile Christians. So a holy direct object clause receives the action of the verb. So these two holy direct object clause, clauses are actually to receive the action of being remembered by each one of the recipients of this epistle who Paul again identifies as Gentile Christians. Now, why does he want them to remember this? 
because he wants them to remember their former state and what God did despite that former state of being unregenerate, alienated from God, and also alienated from his covenant people, you know, and having no confident expectation of a resurrection, a blessing, resurrection body or anything, okay? We're in a bad situation. Just like he describes this, us Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. Why? He's trying to accentuate the grace of God and he wants these Gentile Christians like you and I, and this is what we should do, is remember where we came from and how, and, and how terrible we were in a situation and now we're in. Now he's made us children of God in a covenant, in a relationship with Him. And, and you know, so now we benefit from the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit, both stipulations of the new covenant. And we, as Gentiles, because of our justification through faith in Christ and being united with Jewish believers, and uh, and so therefore we're engrafted in, as Paul says in Romans eleven, us Gentiles, the wild olive branch, we're drafted into the olive tree. And those, uh, those branches on the olive tree are those who are uh, regenerate Jews. The ones that are off the, 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 the olive tree in that passage are unregenerate Jews. So we're united with Jewish believers. There's a Jewish, Jewish remnant in the church. There's always been a remnant in the church. You read the, uh, my study on the doctrine of remnant. We, it's on our website. We did a series on that. Very important. And so God always sets aside a remnant, a, a portion of believers Jewish believers in every dispensation and every generation, right up to the present moment. So us Gentiles have been treated, we've experienced an incredible grace of God and love of God because of our faith in Christ, the justification and our union and invocation with Him through the baptism of the Spirit. Now Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 continues, the holy direct object clause in verse 12 by presenting a contrast with the contents of verse 12. As we just read in my translation in the Net Bible, in Ephesians 2.13, Paul describes these Gentile Christians as like you and I. We're Gentile believers. Most of us, right? If you're Jewish, okay, you're Jewish, but most of us are Gentiles in the church. So in verse 13, Paul describes these Gentile Christians as having been brought near to God and his covenant people Israel by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And that was uh, appropriated, the work of his son at the cross was appropriated because of their faith in Christ, their justification, and their union and identification with him. So therefore, these two Hoti direct object clauses uh, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, identify what these Gentile Christians must continue to make it their habit of remembering. Remember, it's a present imperative. It's a customary and present imperative word, manuo, remember. And that means we're to make it a, continue to make our habit of doing this. It should be a habitual activity because it will give, it cause us, as we pointed out in previous classes, to give thanks to God, to praise Him. You know, when you're thanking God and praising Him, you're not complaining. Let me repeat. When you're praising God and thanking God, you're not complaining and you're not being anxious. Think about that. I have to tell myself this all the time. And uh, especially with, with, with being in a high, position, high pressure position that I'm in, I've had to learn that and I still am learning this. And when you're not, instead of being anxious or worrying or complaining, pray, praise God and thank Him. Because when you're doing that, you're not, you're not being anxious. You're not being, uh, if you're concentrating on praising and giving thanks to Him for what He did for, for you in the past, what He's doing for you now, what He's going to do for you in the future, you don't have time to complain about people or situations to God or, um, you know, uh, uh, be anxious about anything or, uh, you know, or uh, worried. You, you, you're, 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 
you're praising and thanking God, your mind's occupied with that, that's a good thing. So this is what we should be doing on a regular basis in our lives. So we again, these two Hoti, direct object clauses in verses 11 through 13, identify what these Gentile Christians must continue to make it their habit of remembering. Specifically, they must continue to make it their habit of remembering that despite the fact that they had absolutely no relationship with God and His covenant people Israel, God the Father brought them near to Himself and His covenant people Israel by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He did this because of their faith in Jesus Christ, their justification and union identification with Him. What do I mean by that? Well, Christ, when He suffered the wrath of God, when our Lord suffered the wrath of God on the cross, and He did this by suffering the physical torture of the cross, physical death, but also He was abandoned by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experienced abandonment from the Father, loss of fellowship with the Father, those last three hours on the cross. And that the relationship between the Trinity wasn't severed or diminished in any ways, and neither was the hypostatic union of our Lord. This fellowship between the Father and the Son was severed at that time. Why? So that we wouldn't be separated from God for all of eternity. And so he suffered the wrath of God in our place, meaning he suffered the consequences of our sins, okay? Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, from every dispensation, every part of history, past, present, and future, all the sins of human history were credited to Christ, and he suffered the consequences, which is the wrath of God. In other words, he suffered hell for us on the cross. Because he's, he, 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 that's why, that's exactly what he did. He suffered what hell would be like. And he suffered that as a, as a sinless uh, person, a sinless God-man. Think of that. So we don't, can't identify with the fact with, that our Lord lost fellowship with the Father. We can't identify with that kind of suffering. I mean, you're talking about the eternal Son of God not having fellowship with His Heavenly Father for the first time ever? That must have been incredible. We have no, we couldn't, we can't identify with that suffering. We can't, we couldn't comprehend that. Only He knows that, okay? And He did this for us. Think about how much He loves us that He was willing to do that. And the Father. It's incredible. Just that blows my mind. I, 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 I'll never get over that. I mean, I think that's just incredible that He would do that for a knucklehead like me and a knucklehead like you. <laughs> We're in the same boat, you know. <laughs> now, the indefinite temporal particle, pota, Translated formally in your Bibles. It says uh, net, in the Net Bible, therefore remember that you formally, the Gentiles, the word formally there again, pota, it refers to the, un, their, the Gentile Christians, their unregenerate state before they became a Christian, in other words, before they got saved. Now the two Hodi, direct object clauses that we just pointed out to you in verses 11 and 12, as we pointed out, also describe this state, this unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians, and this is true of us because we're Gentile Christians, as possessing absolutely no relationship with God or His covenant people Israel. Now, when it says you, it says, therefore remember that you, the word you, which I translate in my Bible, each and every one of you uh, uh, as a corporate unit, okay? So that uh, is, uh, this particular word is su. It's the nominative second, nominative second person plural form of the personal pronoun su, and it means each and every one of you as a corporate unit and the referent of this, who it's referring to, is the recipients of this epistle, who Paul describes here in Ephesians 2.11 as Gentile Christians. So the word means each and every one of you as a corporate unit because the word not only refers to these Gentile Christians living in the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia as a corporate unit, but it's also used in a distributive sense, emphasizing no exceptions. Now the word for Gentiles, when it's, it's the... Uh, 
the phrase, those who are Gentiles, in Ephesians 2.11. It's the articular, nominative, nuna plural form of the word ethnos, which pertains to those members of the human race. The gen- when it talks about Gentiles, it speaks of someone, a member of the human race, who is not allied with and trusting in the God of Israel, who is Jesus Christ, and it's used in a collective sense for these people. So thus this word for Gentiles, ethnos, it's used of those members of the human race who are not of Jewish racial descent and thus not members of the covenant people of Israel. Or in other words, they're not descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, Jacob got his name changed to Israel by God. These three men are the progenitors of the nation of Israel. Now, when it says in the flesh, it says in uh, Ephesians 2.11, if you look on the new that Bible, it says, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, the word flesh there, and the prepositional phrase in the flesh, is translating the Greek uh, prepositional phrase, and sarki. And this word means with respect to the human body. And it expresses the idea that the recipients of this epistle are Gentiles with respect to their human body because they did not practice the rite of circumcision. So this holy direct object clause in Ephesians 2.11 is then modif- modified by the participial clause hoi legomenoi acrobustia hupo teis legomenes peritomes and sarki hiero poi which is translated by myself, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision by those who receive the designation circumcision with respect to the flesh performed by on the body by human hands. The Net Bible translates this participial clause as who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands. So, this participial clause serves to further describe these Gentile Christians as those who are called the uncircumcision by the Jews. Now, the, the articular, nominative, masculine, plural, present past participle conjugation of the verb lego pertains to persons who are identified by a particular designation or name that reflects a bodily characteristic. Now, the word acrobustio, bustia, talks about this bodily characteristic. It's the word for circumcision, uncircumcision, acrobustia. And this word pertains to the state of being uncircumcised, which speaks of the state of not having the foreskin of the male penis cut off. Now, this word actually was used as a derogatory term by the Jews, emphasizing that non-Jewish people are outsiders in relation to God's covenant people. Now, the referent of the masculine plural form of this verb, which is lego, we pointed out to you, uh, is the recipients of this epistle, who I, Paul identifies as Gentile Christians, because in context, Paul is asserting that these individuals were described by the Jewish people with a derogatory term, acrobostia, uncircumcision. Now, the passive voice of this very lego means that the recipients, the recipients of this epistle, who are identified as Gentile Christians, receive the action of being designated uncircumcision by an expressed agency, which is the circumcision, which is a reference, of course, to the Jewish people. Now, the uncircumcision of the Gentiles was evidence that they did not possess a covenant relationship with God, unlike the Jews, who did possess a covenant relationship with God, and circumcision was the evidence of that relationship. Now, the verb lego actually appears once again in verse 11, but this time we have the articular, genitive, feminine, singular, present, passive, participle conjugation of this word. And again, it pertains to a person or persons being identified by a particular designation or name that reflects a bodily characteristic. This time, the bodily characteristic is identified by the noun peritome, 
which means circumcision. And this word peritome is used in a literal sense of cutting off the foreskin of the male genital organ as a visible mark which distinguishes them from the rest of the human race as the covenant people of God. So the referent of the masculine plural form of this verb, lego, when it appears the second time, are the Jewish people. Why? Because the term circumcision was a term that Gentiles gave to the Jews because they performed the rite of circumcision on their baby boys at eight days old as an identification mark that they were his covenant people through faith in him. And once again, we have that prepositional phrase, and saki, which, which is expressing the idea that those who, are, who call the Gentiles uncircumcision are the circumcision with respect to the human body because they do practice the rite of circumcision. The passive voice of this verb, lego, when it appears a second time, indicates that the Jews receive the action of being designated circumcision from the Gentiles. And the participle conjugation of this verb is in the genitive case when it is used here a second time because it functions as the object of the preposition hupo, which functions as a marker of agency. What this would indicate is that the Jews are the agency which designates Gentiles as the uncircumcised. Now, the articulate genitive feminine singular form of the adjective heropoietos hero, hero denotes something created by finite and temporal humanity as opposed to the infinite and eternal God. Or in other words, it speaks of something that is man-made rather than created by God. So when you look at the Net Bible in verse 11, it says, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision that is performed in the body by human hands. That phrase, by human hands, is translating that word I just pointed out to you in the Greek text, heropoietos. And this word functions, functions as a genitive of production, which is expressing the idea that this circumcision was produced or performed by human hands or human beings. Now, Paul, he employs this adjective to emphasize that the rite of circumcision, which the Jews were commanded by God to practice, stands in stark contrast to the circumcision produced by God himself, which he mentions in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Philippians 3, 3, and Romans 2, 29. Now, this is indicated by the fact that the former is the product of human beings. So, therefore, the latter corresponds to the circumcision of the heart, which God spoke to the Jews about in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10.16 Therefore cleanse your heart and stop being stubborn. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 The Lord your God will also cleanse your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your mind and being so that you may live. Jeremiah 4.4 He says just as ritual, circum, ritual circumcision cuts away the foreskin as an external symbol of dedicated covenant commitment you must genuinely dedicate yourselves to the Lord and get rid of everything that hinders your commitment to me, people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. If you do not, he says, if you do not, where is my pick up the here? Where are if you do not, my anger will blaze up like a flaming fire against you, so th and that no one will be able to extinguish. That will happen because of the evil you have done. So we see that the circumcision Paul mentions in Colossians 2, 11 through 13 is accomplished through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of justification. It's an identification with Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. So we have the spiritual circumcision. Both Jewish and Gentile believers in the church age have the spiritual circumcision, which was performed at our justification 
uh, by the baptism of the Spirit, when we were identified with Christ in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. If you look on the board, Colossians 2, 11 through 13, in Him, in Christ, you also, and he's writing to Gentiles here, Christians, you also were circumcised. Not, however, with the circumcision performed by human hands, but by the removal of the fleshly body, that is, through the circumcision done by Christ. He then explains what he's talking about in verses 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, this is the spiritual circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, you also have been raised with him through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. Even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. So, uh, we see here that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul makes the contrast between the circumcision performed by human hands and that which is performed by the Holy Spirit when a sinner is declared justified by the Father through faith in His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, Paul warns the Philippians about uh, the Judaizers who try to put uh, Gentile Christians under the law and get them circumcised. He says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, exult in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials. And Romans 2.29, Paul asserts that the circumcision of the sinner's heart by the Holy Spirit is vastly superior to the circumcision which is merely performed by human beings. It says in, in Romans 2.29, uh, 2.28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something that is outward in the flesh. But someone who is a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, and not by the written code, the law. This person's praise is not from people, but from God. So what he's saying is, and we study this in our series on the church, and uh, uh, the, the, the relationship that uh, the church has to the law and all that, uh, but uh, we saw that the uh, you could be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're a Jewish person, biologically. But he's saying a true Jew is one who is not only a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but is trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. And at that moment, the Spirit identifies them with Christ in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. That's the spiritual circumcision. That's what he's talking about here. Okay? So it's not getting your true Jew in God's eyes is someone who has been not only circumcised according to Jewish law, eight day old, the boy is supposed to be circumcised, Jesus was, but uh, they also not only that, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and received the, the, the mark of circumcision at eight days old, but they've also trusted in Jesus as Savior. That's what he's talking about there when he describes uh, uh, a, a, tr a true Jew being what he is here. He's describing a true Jew, how, how that is comes about. And it's not enough to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And John the Baptist said that to them uh, at the, uh, when he was baptizing people in, in, in the Gospels, like in Matthew chapter 3. So, as we close, you look at my notes on the board. This circumcision performed by the Holy Spirit on the justified sinner is not only superior to the circumcision which the Jews practice in obedience to God's command, but also can be performed on both Jew and Gentiles and both male and female. Now, the circumcision performed by human hands is vastly inferior to the circumcision by the Holy Spirit at the sinner's justification. So you and I, Gentiles, male and female, slave or free, uh, we are 
and receive that spiritual circumcision, the baptism of the Spirit, and our justification, which identifies us with Christ in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. And we are united to Jewish believers who have gone through the same process, same thing, work of God at, our, at their justification. We both have the same mark on us, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're children of God. And us Gentiles who are not in a covenant relationship with God like the Jews, Jewish believers were, uh, we are now brought near to God. We're in the presence of God. In fact, uh, Christ's death on the cross broke that middle wall of partition down, as we saw in he as, as it says in Hebrews, and we're now in the Holy of Holies. We sit at the right hand of the Father. We're seated at the right hand of the Father. That means identify with Christ in his session at the right hand of the Father means God looks at us as seated at, at the right hand of his Father. So that should comfort us. I know it does me when we go through various trials and tribulations. The great thing about this is we should thank God, praise God, praise God for what he did for us. And that's incredible what he's done for us. It's truly, God's grace is truly amazing. And this is something that we should never forget because it'll allow us to put ourselves, put things in perspective as we go through the various trials and tribulations that we will experience in this life. Because remember, Paul said, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, child of God, when you're, you're heart weighed down with trials and tribulations and troubles, uh, be comforted. God is for you. He did this all for you and I when we were dead in our sins and transgressions. Now that you're his child, in union with his son, Jesus Christ, through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, is he going to freely give you all things? Romans 8.32, rhetorical question, demanding an emphatic yes. Isn't that something? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that, thank you for those who are joining me live and those who might be joining us at a later date through the recordings. I pray that this lesson, being great people, blessing to your people, whoever they are, the body of Christ, and ministering to your people, comforting your people, instructing your people, and encouraging your people and correcting your people when needed or rebuking if needed, whatever it is, I pray the Spirit do a mighty work through the message and your people and their hearts and the hearts of us all, Father. And may it, uh, this lesson cause us to give thanks to you and you praise you for all that you've done for us in the past through your Son and the Spirit and also what you're doing for us now and what you'll do for us in the future. And our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, your Son, his name we pray, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Thank you, everyone.